Jane Elliott, welcome to Tell a Friend. Thank so, you. It's beautiful to be here. So in the past few weeks, we've seen the murder of George Floyd. We've seen the wave of protests that have come as a result of that. And I was wondering, what has been your assessment of everything that's been going on and the movement it's ignited? When you sow, it says in the Bible, if you sow the wind, you will surely reap the whirlwind. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. We are now living with the results of teaching people for over 250 years that there are four or five different races and that one race is, is superior because of the lack of melanin in their skin. It's a lie. We've got to stop teaching the lie. What is hot happening about what's happening, what is heartening about what's happening right now is the fact that there are people of all colors, all genders, all gender, for gender, um, whatever, identification, all people, people of all different religions, people of all different sizes and shapes and ages out there in the streets protesting what happened to that first black man because it was watched on television this time. And what happened to the second one that happened less than a week later. Now everybody sees what's happening. And now we don't have to, people who believe that that was happening all along, don't have to be told that they're wrong because now it's right there in front of our faces. You can't deny, deny that it's happening now. There it is. And now we know that we have to put a stop to it. And we also know that we have a so-called leader at the presidential level who would not put a stop to it if he had his choice, who has led people in exactly the wrong direction where racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, and ethnocentrism are concerned. And we are now living with the consequences of having that kind of person in the White House for three and a half years. And throughout your time as an educator, you'll have seen so many different moments in America's history where we've had um, police brutality being exposed. Do you think there is anything about what is going on today that leads you to believe that this might be the time to change? Oh, yeah, I think that's just that's exactly what this is. This is the time when it isn't just black people who are complaining. It isn't just black people who say it's happening. We can't deny that it's happening now. It's right there in front of us. And so now we we have to stop We're we've got this is going to be difficult for white people because they're going to go through five stages of grief because they're going to have to give up their myth of what the rightness of whiteness. First, they're going to deny it, and that's what they have done. Then they got angry. Then they began to bargain. Right now, we're at the bargaining stage. Next, they're going to, they're going to defend it, and they're going to become more aware. And then they're going to become aware of what it's all about. They're going to change, and then they're going to become aware. But this is what it takes. This is, we have to do this in order to get over the myth of the rightness of whiteness. For 300, almost 300 years in this country, we have learned, well, starting with, with um, when Columbus reached these shores, at that point, we were quite convinced that by the Pope, that the people that he captured and took back to show the Pope weren't really people because they weren't Christianized. They Christianized those people and within three or four years and took them back to show them, show them to the Pope. And the Pope said, oh, these creatures have become Christianized. Therefore, they must be humans. They were human before the Pope said so. They were human before Christopher Columbus made that mistake. They were human just as you and I are human for over 4,000 years. 
before Columbus got here. But we didn't recognize them as humans until they proved that they could be Christianized. This is ridiculous. We have lived with this long enough. It's time for us to realize that there's only one race on the face of the earth, and we're all members of it, and it's the human race. And I think that what's happening right now is proving to us that one of the advantages of having instant communication is that you can see what happened at what's happening as it is happening. So there's no way that we can deny it anymore. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think social media is proving to be a, you know, revolutionary tool for the movements of today. But I wanted... Well, well it's, it's good, bad, but it's, it's a two-edged sword. Social media is a two-edged sword. If you have somebody in position of power who can arrange what's going to be said or done or told or shown on your social media, which is what this is the position we're in right now, then they can decide, they can let their money do the talking. And the rest of us have to do the walking. And that's what's happening in this country today. We have a group of people who are running this show. And they've been running it in the wrong direction for the last three and a half years. So now we have to turn around and go back to the beginning and say, wait a minute, we did it wrong for a lot of years. Now we're going to do it right. Now we have to stop talking about race and start talking about human beings all of whom are members of the same race. We've got to do that, and we've got to do it now. I wanted to, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I wanted to shift our conversation to talking about your early life, because obviously we know you as the educator you are today. But could you take us back to the 1930s and tell us what life was like growing up for a little Jane uh, in Iowa? Oh, it was not pleasant. Make no mistake about this. We lived on 160 acres of land, not good land, topsoil, maybe two or three inches deep. My father was trying to raise seven children on a hard scrabble farm in northeast Iowa. We had no electricity until I was 10 years old. We never did get running water. We had an outhouse back behind the house, and my father had to dig a new hole for it to set over a new hole every two years. We walked to school, a quarter of a mile up the road from our house. Um, the school was, had no electricity and no running water. There were eight, nine grades in one, one building, in one room, with one teacher. And so if, when, in, when you were in kindergarten, you heard everything that was being said in the first, second, third, fourth, up to eighth grade. So by the time you got to the fifth grade, you knew the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade program. By the time you got to eighth grade, you knew you were you were about about 10 times as ready for high school as you should have been you weren't brilliant but you had absorbed all this stuff all those years and then you went to high school and everybody was in the same boat because most of them had come from rural schools little tiny schoolhouses so we're all in the same boat none of us had ever been exposed to people of color until we got to high school and then there was only the only exposure we had to people of color then was one black football player on the, Manny, on the Manly High School football team. That's the first black person we were ever exposed to from the time I was born until the time I was 15. So we didn't know about racism, but my dad would say, don't judge a book by its cover. And he'd say, if you think you're smarter than somebody else's, prove it. And he'd say, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And I don't believe in the golden rule. He did, I believe in the platinum rule. I learned how to work early. 
And obviously, I can't forget how to work because I'm still doing it. And that's 85 years later. We were raised with that work ethic. You work as hard as you can, as long as you can, and be glad that you can. And that's what we did. But we had to in order to survive. We had no money. It was a really, and my mother was Catholic, casual Catholic, and my father was a believing Baptist. She thought we should go to church. My father said, I don't have to go to church to pray. I can pray out there behind those horses. And he did. And usually it worked for him. But when I was 10 years old, my three-year-old little sister, who absolutely, my father, whom my father absolutely adored, died suddenly. And things were very strange after that for a while. He never quite got back to what he had been before. It took away a lot of his confidence in his ability to do what he had to do. But he regained it, but it took him several years. My mother never regained it. She continued to mourn for the rest of her life. And there you speak about your father and uh, your relationship with him. I wanted to know who were the people who inspired you at that young age? Who were the people you looked up to? My father, period. Because we changed teachers every year. <laughs> and if since there were five of us, five Jennisons, my last name was Jennison, there were five of us all going to school at the same time. And nobody really wanted to teach in that school where there were so many Jennisons because we were quite bright and quite uh, aggressive and quite unmanageable in the school situation. So it was hard to get good teachers. It's hard to get good teachers in school, rural schools anyway because it pays practically no money. But um, I can't remember, other than my first grade teacher, a teacher that impressed me to the point that I wanted to be like that person. But when I was in high school, most of the male teachers, in fact, I think all of the male teachers were veterans from the Second World War. And they came back from horror and the horror of that war, most of them from the European theater of war, and went to school on the GI Bill and then came to teach in little towns like Riceville, Iowa. I'll never forget our, our uh, government teacher who had come back from the Second World War. And he was standing up at the desk and he, had, he was a tall, he was a big man. And he had one, the bottom drawer of the desk, he pulled open, he put his foot on it to rest his foot so, it would, so that it would align his spine. And he had a paper clip in his hand and he was bending it, bending it, bending it, bending it. And he said, I'll never fight in another old man's war and neither will any of my sons. And I thought, well, that's, that's not patriotic. He shouldn't say that. So I went home and told my dad what he had said. And he said, by God, he's right. He's absolutely right. That's what these wars are. They're old men's wars, and we send young men to fight them. He was absolutely right. We got a different kind of education than the people before us had, and then the people who came way years after us had, because we had we were educated by people who had gone through hell and had come back. Instead of going into manufacturing or into law or into science or into medicine, someplace where they could make a lot of money, they went into teaching into education where they make a lot of, could make a lot of difference. And when my sisters and I were going to go to college, because my dad said, go to college, no matter what it takes, you go to college, what you put in your head, they can't take away from you. So, and he also said, you can make it, you can make up your mind whether you're gonna make a dollar or you make a difference. My brothers, both my, two of my brothers were civil engineers. The other was a dairy plant operator. And my two sisters and I, 
became teachers. My brothers have made dollars. My sisters and I have made a difference. And growing up, were there much discussion around race and subjects of imperialism, both at school or at home? Did you have those discussions? No, no, not when I was growing up, absolutely not. Because as, as people would say, black people know their, knew their place then. And white people knew they were superior then. It was just taken for granted. It wasn't until when I was probably, well, when the civil rights movement started, then I began to notice that we had been grossly misled and that the myth of race isn't a myth, it's a lie. And my, we moved to, I went to college when I started college. I saw black kids who were smarter than I was, who had more money than I had, who had more experience than I had, who knew more about the world than I did. And I realized that I had been lied to for 18 years at that point, because here were all these fine black people doing all these simple, simply wonderful things. And it was all new to me. And that's when I began to realize that I had been grossly miseducated. And when we got married, my husband was, was managed, managed a supermarket and we worked in what he worked in the store in Waterloo, Iowa. Most of his, most of his customers were black because it was in the black section in the north end of town. Most all of his employees had to be white except one. He was allowed to hire one black employee because it was an it was a food company that was owned out of Chicago, and they would allow him to have one black employee. Well, Jim Jackson was that one black employee, and he quit the store to go to college. So Daryl was looking for another employee, another black employee. He needed at least one. He wanted to have a whole lot of them, but they would only allow him to have one. So Anna Mae Weems, who was the head of the NAACP in Waterloo at that time, came to Daryl's store and said, we're going to picket your store. Daryl said, why would you do that? Because you don't have any black employees. Bring me a black employee. I'll be happy to hire a black employee. I've been looking for one. She said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We want to picket your store. So my husband's grocery uh, market, supermarket, was the first store picketed in Waterloo, Iowa. I learned a whole lot about ignorance and a whole lot about bias and a whole lot of hip hypocrisy. He would have loved to have had a whole mess of black employees, but he wasn't allowed to by the company that owned the store. So after they picketed, shortly after that, the company that owned the store decided to close that store in this black section and move it across town. And they did. And Daryl was going to manage it. And he said to them, don't put that store where you're putting it. You're going to put it on the south side of the, of the street. People don't buy their groceries when they come into work. They buy their groceries when they leave work. You must put it on the north side of the street. They put it on the south side of the street and it never made a dime. So they fired him and they hired another manager who still couldn't make any money because he didn't have any customers. Black people were not going to come all the way across the river and across town to trade in a store on the west side of town. Everybody knew the east side was the black side. The northeast part of Waterloo, Iowa was for blacks. They better stay in their place. They knew that they weren't welcome on the west side of Waterloo. It was a real lesson in how much racism costs. It cost that food company a lot of money because they closed the store. They had to. They didn't have enough customers to keep it open. That's what racism costs you sometimes. 
sometimes it isn't profit profit making. And when would you say was your awakening on the futility of racism, racism and the idea of race? <laughs> the first time I realized how ignorant I was, and that's what racism is about, is remaining ignorant. When we were being transferred <coughs> from Waterloo to Fort Dodge, we, were going to, we, had, we owned a little house, we were buying it. And so we had to put our house up for rent. And I put an ad in the paper, house for rent. And somebody called one day and said, do you rent to coloreds? And I, rem I remember thinking, and I can remember me thinking it, if we rent this house to people, to coloreds, as she called it, when we come back here, and we, I knew we would come back, that they would transfer us back there. When we come back here, these neighbors won't have anything to do with us. So I said to her, and ashamed of this, this is an all white neighborhood. And she said, okay, thank you, and hung up. And I knew immediately what I had done. I had defected to the enemy. All I had to say to her was, if, you want, if you've got the money, you can rent this house. But instead, I made her make the decision as to whether or not she was going to rent the house. That was about as low as I had ever gone, and it's lower than I will ever go again. I have I've absolutely decided at that time that I would never cooperate with racism again. And I haven't. I've lost a lot of friends. I've lost family members. I've lost, huh, I've lost a reputation. I've lost, lost a lot of good things that I thought I needed. I found out that I didn't need any of them. If I had to, as my father said, I'd rather pick with the chickens than give up my principles for somebody else's beliefs. And so I wouldn't give up my principles. And so I gave up a lot of other things. And uh, I wanted to talk about your entrance into teaching. You began teaching in 1953. And today, as it's happening in America and also here in the UK, there's a lot of discussion around the curriculum and what is being taught. Could you talk to me about what the curriculum was like when you started teaching and what you were expected to teach? What, what the curriculum was like when I started teaching <coughs> is pretty much what the curriculum is like right now. As far as I know, we're still, we're still celebrating Columbus Day, which is ridiculous. You don't discover a place. You can't just discover a place where people are already living. They discovered it before you got there. But we're still teaching that. We still have Columbus Day. We're still teaching the myth of race, and we're still teaching that the most of the valuable things that have been done on the face of the earth were done by white males. Now, I don't know where we got all those white males that didn't have any mothers, but that in itself is quite a trick. But we act as though women had nothing to do with the history of humankind. That's the way we were teaching then. And as far as I know, I don't see huge differences in the way we're teaching now, except that when I was teaching, you taught the listening skills and you had textbooks and you read out of the same textbook at the same time and you learned from what you what you put into it is what you got out of it and teachers said this is this is what this is what we're going to put into this and this is what we expect you to get out of it but now i go into schools and there are kids sitting on high stools up to higher desks working on computers and i'm finding a real hard time thinking of how hard it must be to teach now if you have to teach 
in a source and, and and have the computer being your competitor for kids' attention. I think it must be very difficult to be a teacher today because these kids watch a lot of television when they're at home, and their and their learning their span their interest span is it seems to me is about two and a half to three minutes because that's how long the program is on before they have a commercial. So we have cut our attention span into little teeny tiny bits. And I, I found that out when I was teaching, the first year I taught third grade, my kids, the kids in that school didn't have televisions. And, but at Christmas, they got televisions for Christmas. And I watched their attention span drop immediately. And they, they behaved according to the, the attention spans that they had, that they developed on television. It changed their, it changed them, not just um, intellectually, but it changed their behavior. They had to, you had to break the topic every two or three or four minutes because that's what they had become accustomed to with television. It's a really scary thing when you realize how our lives have been changed by the boob tube. And that's what Marshall McLuhan called it. We aren't, I watch kids who, I'll never forget Chris Jensen. He was in third, he was one of my third graders and he didn't get a television that after went, I went back to teaching. He didn't get a television until Christmas. Before Christmas, that was the most interested, most creative, most involved, most wonderful student you could ever imagine. He wasn't the best reader in the world, but he was excited about education. Then for, they got a television for Christmas and I watched him become a television addict. He wasn't excited anymore. He wasn't interested anymore. He could only talk about what he learned on television. And what was on television at that time wasn't terribly exciting, but at least you had Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Green Jeans, and they were valuable teachers of how to be a human being. Most of them had been in the war during the Second World War. And they came back and said, we are going to teach our children in such a way that we won't go to war again. And here were these men who had grown men who were teaching in ways that you couldn't deny their brilliance. And they were teaching in order to make children more aware of differences, but in a positive way. Those three guys were really something amazing. We, I don't see anything like that now. So when you look at... Uh, kids' behavior now, where a lot of people are spending their time online and on the phone. Do you believe that it's the responsibility of the parents to also control their own consumption of social media, of TV, a lot of this digital output? Absolutely. I absolutely think that. And when I was teaching, <laughs> the last few years I taught third grade, we had a kids club, keeping interested, doing something, K-I-D-S. And in order to get into the kids club, in order to be a member of the kids club in my classroom, you had to do something. You could only watch television one hour a night, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. On Friday night, you could watch it as much as you want to. But Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you could only watch one hour of television a night so that you would, but you had, and you had to spend the rest of your time doing something creative, reading a book, playing a game, inventing a game, running outside, tearing up the world, hitting the animals. I didn't care what, but you weren't watching television. And the kids would take home a form and the kids, the parents had to sign, you know, the date 
and what time the kid watched television and how much television that kid watched each night. Then they had to send it back to school on Friday morning. And on Friday morning, if you if you had followed the rules and hadn't watched television for more than an hour a night, then you got in the grab bag. And the grab bag was stuff that I bought that little third, third graders liked to have. They worked their little tails off to get into that grab bag. And one of the teacher's aides said to me one day, I'm glad my son isn't in your class. I said, why? Because you don't allow these kids to be with their parents at night. I said, what do you mean? Well, you don't allow, allow them to watch television. I said, when they're watching television, they aren't with their parents. Don't you realize that they're in suit, inside that boob tube? They aren't with their parents. They aren't, they aren't conversing with their parents. They aren't communicating with their parents. They're being put to sleep. She said, well, I'm just glad Neil isn't in there. Then I moved up to the junior high and I got her son in seventh grade. And she came to me one day and said, Jane, what? She said, I am so glad Neil has you for a teacher. I said, and why is that? She said, I never see him without a book in his hand. I said, really? She said, yes, I am so pleased. You have made a reader out of him. And I bit my tongue. I didn't say to her, if I'd had him in third grade, he'd have been reading for all those four and a half years. I didn't say it. I said, well, I'm glad you feel that way. Neil is one of the kids who read junior high. If you're in my classroom in junior high, you had to read three books in the first six weeks, period. In the first nine weeks. And they did, because that was the requirement. And so for the rest of his life, Neil has been a real reader. You can create readers where the, out of who, kids who are addicted to television, and we had better start doing it. And on this topic of books, I wanted to ask you about what you think about reading lists. So still on the subject of education, there's this move in the UK right now and in America, I'd guess, called decolonizing the curriculum. So this attempt to try and diversify the kinds of books that children are being exposed to. Do you subscribe to that? I do subscribe to that as long as you don't take out books like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And that's one of the books that they tried to take out when I was doing my student teaching. When I was doing my student teaching, I did my, my student teaching off campus. I went to Independence, Iowa and taught in a third grade classroom. And the teacher was also the principal of that school. And during that time, one of the parents was on this anti-communist kick. And he said that she was teaching, teaching communism in her school because she was letting kids read the book, The Red Shoes, which he said was all, it was all about communism. So he brought people like himself to the school and they went through the library to pick out all the books that he considered not proper to be using with third graders went through her library and I stood back and watched her put up with that and they took out the red shoes and I don't remember what else they took out but you want to be careful when you start taking out books because they don't apply to what's happening now Though there's somebody who said a long time ago, those who forget the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. You can't figure out why you have to make changes unless you realize what was going on before. And for us to take out, to decolonize the libraries is pretty ridiculous because what you're trying to do is erase the past. You'd better look at what we learned in the past in order to understand why we're doing what we're doing in the present. But if you just wipe out the past and pretend that never happened, that doesn't fix the situation. You see, 
I'm too old to have this discussion because I'm 86 years old and I remember when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And I remember what Hitler did. He was born the same, he was, I was born the same year that he and Franklin Roosevelt came to power. So I remember some things that people under the age of 50 don't remember. And if you try to tell them about it, they think you're, you're out of your mind. Those things never really happened. But you see, if you don't teach about the past and you don't see those books, those things that were decolonizing, you won't realize how ugly things could be and you let it happen again. That's what's happening in my country right now. We have a man who studied the writings of Adolf Hitler before he became president. His governing, his governing policies are taken from Adolf Hitler's. So that we now have in our country, a situation that is, is becoming more and more similar to what the Nazis did in Europe. 75 years ago. If you don't remember the mistakes of the past, you are doomed to repeat them. I'm opposed to taking out books like, books that tell what went on then. If you don't know what went on then, you won't recognize it when it happens again. And if we move our discussion to looking at the civil rights movement in America, and particularly the 60s and early 70s, there was this ideological debate between the Martin Luther camp and also the Malcolm X camp. So between this reformist side and the black radical side, you were obviously aware of these debates, but where did you fall in line with, with those two ideologies? I fell in line with Martin Luther King Jr. until I realized that some of the things Malcolm X was saying were absolutely proper and absolutely right. And I watched Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X come closer and closer together in their philosophies. Malcolm X became less and less violent. Martin Luther King Jr. became more and more willing to go into the streets and fight, demand rights instead of just being passive. And if those two men had ever gotten together, they would have changed the economic situation in this country. Therefore, they had to die. And that's why they were killed. Make no mistake about that, that those men were not killed by individuals. They were killed by a society that was not going to see that great change happen in our lifetime. And it hasn't. But it now, now the person, the, those who are absolutely determined to keep save America for white people are going to be have a lot of difficulty doing that because the people who are in the streets now are people of all colors. All genders, all gender, gender identifications, all ages, all cultures, all religions. There are people are going together to fight this thing that never would have done it if they hadn't seen that horror on television. Now we can't deny it anymore. We see it time after time after time on television. So we can't deny what's happening. So now they've decided, young people have decided they've got to put a stop to it. And they're absolutely right. Do you believe that we as a society internationally, because obviously Dr. King is world known, world renowned. Do you believe we sanitize the history of Martin Luther King? Because oftentimes we hear, you know, the I have a dream speech and we hear that, you know, Martin Luther King wanted black and white children, you know, all of that. Do you think we sanitize that history too much? 
No, we sanitize all history. We say George Washington never told a lie. Well, he didn't go home for eight years while he was president. I think he told one or two lies in that time, don't you? We sanitize history. We say Abraham Lincoln was, he was our first president. He was also our first black president. According to what I've read lately, he was part black, part white, and part Cherokee Indian. We sanitize history up to the point where we, we wipe out a lot of knowledge that we should have left in there. Yeah, we probably sanitize it too much, but we, may, we sanitize it in the other direction. We sanitize it to tell the story that we want told, which is the story of the rightness of whiteness. We take out all the valuable things, many of the valuable things that we got from people of color because we have to, we have to continue the myth of race. And we work hard at that. And right now in my country, we have another one of those scientists who is telling the world that the shape of your head and the shape of your face determine your intelligence. Once again, we went through this in the 1800s. Now we're going through it again because we've forgotten the mistakes of the past, so we're doomed to repeat them. And we've got a bunch of white supremacists we'll go, who will go along with this person. They want to believe it. White folks want to believe that they are superior because of a physical characteristic over which they have no control. Now, be reasonable. Would you rather think yourself great or less than great? Well, if you want to be, think yourself great, you have to think you have to believe the lie of the rightness of whiteness. And if you want to just just go along to get along, then that's what you have to do if you're black. But if you're black and you know that you're better than you have ever been accused of being, then you don't you don't sit back for it anymore. Now they are come. Black people are saying we've had enough. So I wanted to move on to asking you about that tragic day on April 4th, 1968, and asking you what was your reaction and also what was the re reaction in America when Dr. King sadly was assassinated? A whole lot of white people cheered. A whole lot of white people said, well, there we go again. Maybe he deserved it. A whole lot of black people cried. A whole lot of black people thought that he was their hero. They should have known that we wouldn't allow Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. to get together and make a difference. I was absolutely infuriated. I did the exercise in the morning. I went down to the teacher's lounge at noon to share what was happening with the other two third grade teachers when I told them what was happening in my classroom, this horrendous thing that was happening. The younger one of those two said, I don't know how you have time for all that extra stuff. It's all I can do to teach reading, writing, arithmetic. The other one who had been teaching for probably 30 years, was about 62 years old at the time, said, in front of a group of teachers, I don't know why you're doing that. I thought it was about time somebody shot that son of a bitch. And that was the, uh, that was the attitude of a whole lot of white males in this country on that, night, on that day. They thought he should have sat down and shut up, and he got what he deserved. But black people realized he didn't get what he deserved, and they weren't going to go along with it anymore. And that began a, a real change in this country. And we were making good progress up until the end of Barack Obama's term, second term. And then we, then we started, and we have made horrendous steps backwards since the election of Donald Trump. And after the uh, death, well, actually, uh, you may correct me on my timeline here. 
what was the date when you started the blue eye, brown eye experiment? The next April day, 5th, April 5th, April 5th. And could you talk to me about that first lesson when you introduced to your students what you were going to do? They wanted to do it because everything we did in my classroom was fun. And they thought that sounded like fun, too. They found out within three minutes that it wasn't fun. And I found out within three minutes that it was absolutely horrendous. And they, they found out how it feels to be on the top. And one group found out how it feels to be on the bottom. And after it was over, then we repeated, we reversed the exercise on Monday. And after it was over on Tuesday morning, we talked about, after they had written their, their compositions about it, we talked about what had happened. And I said, why didn't you blue-eyed boys get even with the brown-eyed boys? You said you were going to. And they said, because we knew how it felt to be treated that way. And we didn't want, make, want to make anybody feel the way we felt when we were on the bottom. They learned an immense amount in two days. And what was the aftermath like when uh, <laughs> you about? Well, I learned a lot then because I was, I was totally rejected by my peers, by the community, by, uh, it was, it was uh, ugly. It was ugly. My kids were beaten and spit on. Their belongings were destroyed. They lost all their friends. Uh, the, finally, after two, two or three years after that, the uh, principal's wife came to me and she was teaching at the upper level and said, Jane, you've got to get your kids out of this school. These teachers are trying to destroy your children. So we moved out of Riceville and I kept on teaching there and we got the kids into a school in Osage, 17 miles away. And I just kept on teaching there. And you clearly made uh, a lot of sacrifices for this. What do you say to people? No, 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 no. I didn't make any sacrifices. Make no mistake about this. I don't consider losing fair weather friends sacrificing. I don't consider having to move, get my kids out of that school a sacrifice. They were in a better school when they left there. I don't consider that a sacrifice. I consider that the price you pay for doing what's right. It's not a sacrifice and I don't, I don't consider it a sacrifice. I consider what I was taught to do when I was in college. Here's the way you teach. You teach in a way that will make a difference in the, in the future. But when I was in the, my first year in college, we had a social studies instructor, elementary education instructor, who said to this group of young people, when you get in the classroom, you must not teach in opposition to the local mores, M-O-R-E-S. The people who are paying your wages through their taxes have the right to have their children learn what they want them to. And at that early age, 19, I decided that guy was absolutely wrong. So when I got into the classroom, I taught in opposition to the local mores. And if every teacher who taught in opposition to the local mores in that school had done what I did, had taught in opposition to racism, we could have wiped out racism in that community. And if every teacher would do that in every school, we could wipe out racism in two generations. A generation is about 25 years. In 50 years, we could have killed racism in this country. And I know we could have, because I have proof in what the people who have been through my exercise have done and have said and have been as a result of that exercise. We could wipe out racism if we chose to. Now I'm going to ask you uh, to answer two questions uh, and complete the sentence. The first one, the biggest misconception about me is... The biggest misconception about me is that I'm a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm an angry, pale-faced, 
old woman who says, this has to stop. I'm not a hero. I'm doing what an educator does. I'm trying to lead people out of ignorance. Okay. And finally, I am proudest of. I'm proudest of. I raised four kids and only lost one of them two years ago. Who had eight grandchildren. I have eight grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. And my husband and I were married together. And we were together for 60 years and married for 59 of it. That's an accomplishment. And I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of that marriage. And I'm proud of what we produced through that marriage. All the rest of this is something anybody could have done. But nobody else could have been married to Daryl Elliott for 59 years. Jane Elliott, thank you very much for joining me on today. Thank you.